Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Stories for the Road and the conclusion to The Return of Tarzan by Edgar Rice Burroughs, chapters 25 and 26. And now, chapter 25, Through the Forest Primeval. For a brief, sickening moment, Tarzan felt the slipping of the rope to which he had clung and heard the scraping of the block of stone against the masonry above. Then of a sudden, the rope was still. The stone had caught at the very edge. Gingerly, the ape-man clambered up the frail rope. In a moment, his head was above the edge of the shaft. The court was empty. The inhabitants of Opar were viewing the sacrifice. Tarzan could hear the voice of La from the nearby sacrificial court. The dance had ceased. It must be almost time for the knife to fall. But even as he thought these things, he was running rapidly toward the sound of the high priestess's voice. Fate guided him to the very doorway of the great roofless chamber. Between him and the altar was the long row of priests and priestesses, awaiting with their golden cups the spilling of the warm blood of their victim. La's hand was descending slowly toward the bosom of the frail, quiet figure that lay stretched upon the hard stone. Tarzan gave a gasp that was almost a sob as he recognized the features of the girl he loved, and then the scar upon his forehead turned to a flaming band of scarlet. A red mist floated before his eyes, and, with the awful roar of the bull-ape gone mad, he sprang like a huge lion into the midst of the votaries. Seizing a cudgel from the nearest priest, he laid about him like a veritable demon as he forged his rapid way toward the altar. The hand of law had paused at the first noise of the interruption. When she saw who the author of it was, she went white. She had never been able to fathom the secret of the strange white man's escape from the dungeon in which she had locked him. She had not intended that he should ever leave Opar, for she had looked upon his giant frame and handsome face with the eyes of a woman, and not those of a priestess. In her clever mind she had concocted a story of wonderful revelation from the lips of the flaming god himself, in which she had been ordered to receive this white stranger as a messenger from him to his people on earth. That would satisfy the people of Opar, she knew. The man would be satisfied, she felt quite sure, to remain and be her husband, rather than to return to the sacrificial altar. But when she had gone to explain her plan to him, he had disappeared, though the door had been tightly locked as she had left it. And now he had returned, materialized from thin air, and was killing her priests as though they had been sheep. For the moment she forgot her victim, and before she could gather her wits together again, the huge white man was standing before her, the woman who had lain upon the altar, in his arms. "'One side, La,' he cried. "'You saved me once, and so I would not harm you. But do not interfere or attempt to follow, or I shall have to kill you also.' As he spoke, he stepped past her toward the entrance to the subterranean vaults. "'Who is she?' asked the high priestess, pointing at the unconscious woman. "'She is mine.' "'said Tarzan of the apes. "'For a moment the girl of Opar stood wide-eyed and staring. "'Then a look of hopeless misery suffused her eyes. "'Tears welled into them, "'and with a little cry she sank to the cold floor, "'just as a swarm of frightful men dashed past her "'to leap upon the ape-man. "'But Tarzan of the apes was not there "'when they reached out to seize him. "'With a light bound he had disappeared into the passage "'leading to the pits below, "'and when his pursuers came more cautiously "'after they found the chamber empty,' They but laughed and jabbered to one another, for they knew that there was no exit from the pits other than the one through which he had entered. If he came out at all, he must come this way, and they would wait and watch for him above. And so Tarzan of the Apes, carrying the unconscious Jane Porter, came through the pits of Opar beneath the temple of the flaming god without pursuit. 
but when the men of Opar talked further about the matter, they recalled to mind that this very man had escaped once before into the pits, and, though they had watched the entrance, he had not come forth, and yet today he had come upon them from the outside. They would again send fifty men out into the valley to find and capture this desecrator of their temple. After Tarzan reached the shaft beyond the broken wall, he felt so positive of the successful issue of his flight that he stopped to replace the tumbled stones, for he was not anxious that any of the inmates should discover this forgotten passage, and through it come upon the treasure chamber. It was in his mind to return again to Opar and bear away still greater fortune than he had already buried in the amphitheater of the apes. On through the passageways he trotted, past the first door and through the treasure vault, past the second door and into the long, straight tunnel that led to the lofty hidden exit beyond the city. Jane Porter was still unconscious. At the crest of the great boulder he halted to cast a backward glance toward the city. Coming across the plain he saw a band of hideous men of Opar. For a moment he hesitated. Should he descend and make a race for the distant cliffs, or should he hide here until night? And then a glance at the girl's white face determined him. He could not keep her here and permit her enemies to get between them and liberty. For aught he knew they might have been followed through the tunnels, and to have foes before and behind would result in almost certain capture, since he could not fight his way through the enemy burdened as he was with the unconscious girl. To ascend the steep face of the boulder with Jane Porter was no easy task, but by binding her across his shoulders with the grass rope he succeeded in reaching the ground in safety before the Oparians arrived at the great rock. As the descent had been made upon the side away from the city, the searching party saw nothing of it, nor did they dream that their prey was so close before them. By keeping the copsy between them and their pursuers, Tarzan of the apes managed to cover nearly a mile before the men of Opar rounded the granite sentinel and saw the fugitive before them. With loud cries of savage delight, they broke into a mad run, thinking doubtless that they would soon overhaul the burdened runner. But they both underestimated the powers of the ape-man and overestimated the possibilities of their own short, crooked legs. By maintaining an easy trot, Tarzan kept the distance between them always the same. Occasionally he would glance at the face so near his own. Had it not been for the faint beating of the heart pressed so close against his own, he would not have known that she was alive, so white and drawn was the poor, tired face. And thus they came to the flat-topped mountain and the barrier cliffs. During the last mile Tarzan had let himself out, running like a deer that he might have ample time to descend the face of the cliffs before the Oparians could reach the summit and hurl rocks down upon them. And so it was that he was half a mile down the mountainside ere the fairest little men came panting to the edge. With cries of rage and disappointment, they ranged along the cliff-top, shaking their cudgels and dancing up and down in a perfect passion of anger. But this time they did not pursue beyond the boundary of their own country. Whether it was because they recalled the futility of their former long and irksome search, or after witnessing the ease with which the ape-man swung along before them, and the last burst of speed, they realized the utter hopelessness of further pursuit. It is difficult to say. But as Tarzan reached the woods that began at the base of the foothills which skirted the barrier cliffs, they turned their faces once more toward Opar. Just within the forest edge, where he could yet watch the cliff-tops, Tarzan laid his burden upon the grass, and going to the nearby rivulet brought water with which he bathed her face and hands. But even this did not revive her. And, greatly worried, he gathered the girl into his strong arms once more, and hurried on toward the west. 
Late in the afternoon, Jane Porter finally regained consciousness. She did not open her eyes at once. She was trying to recall the scenes that she had last witnessed. Ah, she remembered now. The altar, the terrible priestess, the descending knife. She gave a little shudder, for she thought that either this was death, or that the knife had buried herself in her heart, and she was experiencing the brief delirium preceding death. And when finally she mustered courage to open her eyes, the sight that met them confirmed her fears, for she saw that she was being borne through a leafy paradise in the arms of her dead love. "'If this be death,' she murmured, "'thank God that I am dead.' "'You spoke, Jane,' cried Tarzan. "'You are regaining consciousness.' "'Yes, Tarzan of the Apes,' she replied, "'and for the first time in months "'a smile of peace and happiness lighted her face. "'Thank God,' cried the ape-man, "'coming to the ground in a little grassy clearing beside the stream. "'I was in time, after all.' "'In time? What do you mean?' she questioned. "'In time to save you from death upon the altar,' he replied. "'Do you not remember?' "'Save me from death?' she asked, in a puzzled tone. "'Are we not both dead, my Tarzan?' He had placed her upon the grass by now, her back resting against the stem of a huge tree. At her question he stepped back where he could better see her face. "'Dead,' he repeated, and then he laughed. "'You are not, Jade, and if you will return to the city of Opar and ask them who dwell there, they will tell you that I was not dead a few short hours ago. No, dear, we are both very much alive.' "'But both Hazel and Monsieur Thuran told me that you had fallen into the ocean many miles from land,' she urged, as though trying to convince him that he must indeed be dead. They said that there was no question but that it must have been you, unless that you could have survived or been picked up. "'How can I convince you that I am no spirit?' he asked, with a laugh. "'It was I whom the delightful Monsieur Thuran pushed overboard, but I did not drown. I will tell you all about it after a while. And here I am very much the same wild man you first knew, Jane Porter.' The girl rose slowly to her feet and came toward him. "'I cannot even yet believe it,' she murmured. "'It cannot be that such happiness can be true, after all the hideous things I have passed through these awful months since the Lady Alice went down.' She came close to him and laid a hand, soft and trembling, upon his arm. "'It must be that I am dreaming, and that I shall awaken in a moment to see that awful knife descending toward my heart. Kiss me, dear, just once before I lose my dream forever.' Tarzan of the Apes needed no second invitation. He took the girl he loved in his strong arms and kissed her not once, but a hundred times, until she lay there panting for breath. Yet when he stopped, she put her arms around his neck and drew his lips down to hers once more. "'Am I alive in reality, or am I but a dream?' he asked. "'If you are not alive, my man,' she answered, "'I pray that I may die thus before I awaken to the terrible realities of my last waking moments.' For a while both were silent, gazing into each other's eyes as though each still questioned the reality of the wonderful happiness that had come to them. The past, with all its hideous disappointments and horrors, was forgotten. The future did not belong to them, but the present. Ah, it was theirs. None could take it from them. It was the girl who first broke the sweet silence. "'Where are we going?' she asked. "'What are we going to do?' "'Where would you best like to go?' he asked. What would you like best to do? 
"'To go where you go, my man, to do whatever seems best to you,' she answered. "'But Clayton,' he asked. "'For a moment he had forgotten that there existed upon earth other than they two. "'We have forgotten your husband.' "'I am not married, Tarzan of the Apes,' she cried. "'Nor am I longer promised in marriage. "'The day before those awful creatures captured me, "'I spoke to Mr. Clayton of my love for you, "'and he understood then that I could not keep the wicked promise that I had made.' It was after we had been miraculously saved from an attacking lion. She paused suddenly and looked up at him, a questioning light in her eyes. Tarzan of the apes, she cried. It was you who did that thing. It could have been no other. He dropped his eyes, for he was ashamed. How could you have gone away and left me? She cried, reproachfully. Don't, Jane, he pleaded. Please don't. "'You cannot know how I have suffered since for the cruelty of that act, "'or how I suffered then, first in jealous rage, "'and then in bitter resentment against the fate that I had not deserved. "'I went back to the apes after that, Jane, "'intending never again to see a human being. "'He told her then of his life since he had returned to the jungle, "'of how he had dropped like a plummet from a civilized Parisian "'to a savage Waziri warrior, "'and from there back to the brute that he had been raised. "'She asked him many questions and at last fearfully of the things that Monsieur Thuran had told her, of the woman in Paris. He narrated every detail of his civilized life to her, omitting nothing, for he felt no shame, since his heart had always been true to her. When he had finished, he sat looking at her, as though waiting for her judgment and his sentence. "'I knew that he was not speaking the truth,' she said. "'Oh, what a horrible creature he is!' "'You are not angry with me, then?' he asked. And her reply— though apparently most irrelevant, was truly feminine. "'Is Olga de Cowd very beautiful?' she asked. And Tarzan laughed and kissed her again. "'Not one-tenth so beautiful as you,' he said. She gave a contented little sigh and let her head rest against his shoulder. He knew that he was forgiven. That night Tarzan built a snug little bower high among the swaying branches of a giant tree, and there the tired girl slept, while in a crotch beneath her the ape-man curled, ready, even in sleep, to protect her. It took them many days to make the long journey to the coast. Where the way was easy, they walked hand in hand, beneath the arching boughs of the mighty forest, as might in a far-gone past have walked their primeval forebears. When the underbrush was tangled, he took her in his great arms, and bore her lightly through the trees, and the days were all too short, for they were very happy. Had it not been for their anxiety to reach and succor Clayton, they would have drawn out the sweet pleasure of that wonderful journey indefinitely. On the last day before they reached the coast, Tarzan caught the scent of men ahead of them, the scent of black men. He told the girl and cautioned her to maintain silence. There are few friends in the jungle, he remarked dryly. In half an hour they came stealthily upon a small party of black warriors filing toward the west. As Tarzan saw them, he gave a cry of delight. It was a band of his own waziri. Busuli was there, and others who had accompanied him to Opar. At the sight of Tarzan, they danced and cried out in exuberant joy. For weeks they'd been searching for him, they told him. The natives exhibited considerable wonderment at the presence of the white girl with them, and when they found that she was to be his woman, they vied with one another to do her honor. With the happy waziri laughing and dancing about them, they came to the rude shelter by the shore. There was no sign of life, and no response to their calls. Tarzan clambered quickly to the interior of the little tree hut, 
only to emerge a moment later with an empty tin. Throwing it down to Busuli, he told him to fetch water. Then he beckoned Jane Porter to come up. Together they leaned over the emaciated thing that once had been an English nobleman. Tears came to the girl's eyes as she saw the poor, sunken cheeks and hollow eyes and the lines of suffering upon the once young and handsome face. "'He still lives,' said Tarzan. "'We will do all that can be done for him, but I fear that we are too late.' When Busuli had brought the water, Tarzan forced a few drops between the cracked and swollen lips. He wetted the hot forehead and bathed the pitiful limbs. Presently Clayton opened his eyes. A faint, shadowy smile lighted his countenance as he saw the girl leaning over him. At the sight of Tarzan, the expression changed to one of wonderment. "'It's all right, old fellow,' said Tarzan. "'We found you in time. Everything will be all right now, and we'll have you on your feet again before you know it.' The Englishman shook his head weakly. "'It's too late,' he whispered. "'But it's just as well. I'd rather die.' "'Where is Monsieur Thuran?' asked the girl. "'He left me after the fever got bad. "'He is a devil. "'When I begged for the water that I was too weak to get, "'he drank before me, threw the rest out, and laughed in my face. "'At the thought of it, the man was suddenly animated by a spark of vitality. "'He raised himself upon one elbow. "'Yes!' he almost shouted. "'I will live.' I will live long enough to find and kill that beast. But the brief effort left him weaker than before, and he sank back again upon the rotting grasses that, with his old ulster, had been the bed of Jane Porter. Don't worry about Thuran, said Tarzan of the Apes, laying a reassuring hand on Clayton's forehead. He belongs to me, and I shall get him in the end. Never fear. For a long time Clayton lay very still. Several times Tarzan had to put his ear quite close to the sunken chest to catch the faint beating of the worn-out heart. Toward evening he aroused again for a brief moment. "'Jane,' he whispered. The girl bent her head closer to catch the faint message. "'I have wronged you and him.' He nodded weakly toward the ape-man. "'I loved you so. It is a poor excuse to offer for injuring you. "'but I could not bear to think of giving you up. "'I do not ask you forgiveness. "'I only wish to do now the thing I should have done over a year ago.' "'He fumbled in the pocket of the ulster beneath him "'for something that he had discovered there "'while he lay between the paroxysms of fever. "'Presently he found it, a crumpled bit of yellow paper. "'He handed it to the girl, "'and as she took it his arm fell limply across his chest. "'His head dropped back, "'and with a little gasp he stiffened and was still.' Then Tarzan of the Apes drew a fold of the ulster across the upturned face. For a moment they remained kneeling there, the girl's lips moving in silent prayer, and as they rose and stood on either side of the now peaceful form, tears came to Tarzan's eyes. For through the anguish that his own heart had suffered, he had learned compassion for the suffering of others. Through her own tears the girl read the message upon the bit of faded yellow paper, and as she read her eyes went very wide. Twice she read those startling words before she could fully comprehend their meaning. Fingerprints prove you, Greystoke. Congratulations. Darnot. She handed the paper to Tarzan. And he has known it all this time, she said. And did not tell you? I knew it first, Jane, replied Tarzan. 
I did not know that he knew it at all. I must have dropped this message that night in the waiting room. It was there that I received it. And afterward you told us that your mother was a she-ape and that you had never known your father, she asked incredulously. The title and the estates meant nothing to me without you, he replied, and if I had taken them away from him, I should have been robbing the woman I love. Do you understand? Do you understand, Jane? It was as though he attempted to excuse a fault. She extended her arms toward him across the body of the dead man and took his hands in hers. And I would have thrown away a love like that, she said. We'll return to the final chapter of The Return of Tarzan right after these sponsor messages. And now, Chapter 26, The Passing of the Ape-Man. The next morning they set out upon the short journey to Tarzan's cabin. Four Waziri bore the body of the dead Englishman. It had been the ape-man's suggestion that Clayton be buried beside the former Lord Greystoke near the edge of the jungle against the cabin that the older man had built. Jane Porter was glad that it was to be so, and in her heart of hearts she wondered at the marvelous fineness of the character of this wondrous man, who, though raised by brutes and among brutes, had the true chivalry and tenderness which only associates with the refinements of the highest civilization. They had proceeded some three miles of the fire that had separated them from Tarzan's own beach when the Waziri who were ahead stopped suddenly, pointing in amazement at a strange figure approaching them along the beach. It was a man with a shiny silk hat who walked slowly with a bent head and hands clasped behind him underneath the tails of his long, black coat. At the sight of him, Jane Porter uttered a little cry of surprise and joy and ran quickly ahead to meet him. At the sound of her voice, the old man looked up and when he saw who it was confronting him, he, too, cried out in relief and happiness. As Professor Archimedes Q. Porter folded his daughter in his arms, tears streamed down his seamed old face, and it was several minutes before he could control himself sufficiently to speak. When a moment later he recognized Tarzan, it was with difficulty that they could convince him that his sorrow had not unbalanced his mind, for with the other members of the party he had been so thoroughly convinced that the ape-man was dead, it was a problem to reconcile the conviction with the very lifelike appearance of Jane's forest god. The old man was deeply touched at the news of Clayton's death. "'I cannot understand it,' he said. "'Monsieur Thuran assured us that Clayton passed away many days ago.' "'Thuran is with you?' asked Tarzan. "'Yes, but he recently found us and led us to your cabin. We were camped but a short distance north of it.' "'Bless me, but he'll be delighted to see you both.' "'And surprised,' commented Tarzan. "'A short time later the strange party came to the clearing "'in which stood the ape-man's cabin. "'It was filled with people coming and going, "'and almost the first whom Tarzan saw was Darnot. "'Paul!' he cried. "'In the name of sanity, what are you doing here? "'Or are we all insane?' "'It was quickly explained, however,' as were many other seemingly strange things. Darnot's ship had been cruising along the coast on patrol duty when, at the lieutenant's suggestion, they had anchored off the little landlocked harbor to have another look at the cabin and the jungle in which many of the officers and men had taken part in exciting adventures just two years before. Upon landing they had found Lord Tennington's party, and arrangements were being made to take them all on board the following morning and carry them back to civilization. Hazel Strong and her mother, Esmeralda, 
and Mr. Samuel T. Fillander were almost overcome by happiness at Jane Porter's safe return. Her escape seemed to them little short of miraculous, and it was the consensus of opinion that it could have been achieved by no other man than Tarzan of the Apes. They loaded the uncomfortable ape-man with eulogies and attentions until he wished himself back in the amphitheater of the apes. All were interested in his savage waziri, and many were the gifts the black men received from these friends of their king. But when they learned that he might sail away from them upon the great canoe that lay at anchor a mile offshore, they became very sad. As yet the newcomers had seen nothing of Lord Tennington and Monsieur Thuran. They had gone out for fresh meat early in the day, and had not yet returned. "'How surprised this man, whose name you say is Rokoff, will be to see you,' said Jane Porter to Tarzan. "'His surprise will be short-lived,' replied the ape-man grimly, and there was that in his tone that made her look up into his face in alarm. What she read there evidently confirmed her fears, for she put her hand upon his arm, and pleaded with him to leave the Russian to the laws of France. "'In the heart of the jungle, dear,' she said, with no other form of right or justice to appeal to other than your own mighty muscles, you would be warranted in executing upon this man the sentence he deserves. But with the strong arm of a civilized government at your disposal, it would be murder to kill him now. Even your friends would have to submit to your arrest, or if you resisted, it would plunge us all into misery and unhappiness again. I cannot bear to lose you again, my Tarzan. Promise me that you will but turn him over to Captain Dufran, and let the law take its course. The beast is not worth risking our happiness for. He saw the wisdom of her appeal and promised. A half hour later, Rokoff and Tennington emerged from the jungle. They were walking side by side. Tennington was the first to note the presence of strangers in the camp. He saw the black warriors palavering with the sailors from the cruiser, and then he saw a lithe, brown giant talking to Lieutenant Darnot and Captain Dufran. Well, who is that, I wonder? said Tennington to Rokoff, and as the Russian raised his eyes and met those of the ape-man full upon him, he staggered and went white. Sapristi, he cried, and before Tennington realized what he intended, he had thrown his gun to his shoulder, and aiming point-blank at Tarzan, pulled the trigger. But the Englishman was close to him, so close that his hand reached the leveled barrel a fraction of a second before the hammer fell upon the cartridge, and the bullet that was intended for Tarzan's heart "'wind harmlessly above his head. "'Before the Russian could fire again, "'the ape-man was upon him "'and had wrested the firearm from his grasp. "'Captain Dufran, Lieutenant Darnot, "'and a dozen sailors had rushed up "'at the sound of the shot, "'and now Tarzan turned the Russian over to them "'without a word. "'He had explained the matter to the French commander "'before Rokoff arrived, "'and the officer gave immediate orders "'to place the Russian in irons "'and confine him on board the cruiser.' Just before the guard escorted the prisoner into the small boat that was to transport him to his temporary prison, Tarzan asked permission to search him, and to his delight found the stolen papers concealed upon his person. The shot had brought Jane Porter and the others from the cabin, and a moment after the excitement had died down, she greeted the surprised Lord Tennington. Tarzan joined them after he had taken the papers from Rokoff, and as he approached, Jane Porter introduced him to Tennington. John Clayton! "'Lord Greystoke, my lord,' she said. "'The Englishman looked his astonishment "'in spite of his most Herculean efforts to appear courteous, "'and it required many repetitions "'of the strange story of the ape-man "'as told by himself, Jane Porter, and Lieutenant Darnot, "'to convince Lord Tennington "'that they were not all quite mad. 
At sunset they buried William Cecil Clayton beside the jungle graves of his uncle and his aunt, the former Lord and Lady Greystoke, and it was at Tarzan's request that three volleys were fired over the last resting place of a brave man who met his death bravely. Professor Porter, who in his younger days had been ordained a minister, conducted the simple services for the dead. About the grave, with bowed heads, stood a strange company of mourners as the sun ever looked down upon. There were French officers and sailors, two English lords, Americans, and a score of savage African braves. Following the funeral, Tarzan asked Captain Dufran to delay the sailing of the cruiser a couple of days while he went inland a few miles to fetch his belongings, and the officer gladly granted the favor. Late in the afternoon, Tarzan and his waziri returned with the first load of belongings, and when the party saw the ancient ingots of virgin gold, they swarmed upon the ape-man with a thousand questions, but he was smilingly obdurate to their appeals. He declined to give them the slightest clue as to the source of his immense treasure. "'There are a thousand that I left behind,' he explained, "'for every one that I brought away, and when these are spent I may wish to return for more.' The next day he returned to camp with the balance of his ingots, and they were stored on board the cruiser, where Captain Dufran said he felt like the commander of an old-time Spanish galleon returning from the treasure cities of the Aztecs. "'I don't know what minute my crew will cut my throat and take over this ship,' he added. The next morning, as they were preparing to embark upon the cruiser, Tarzan ventured a suggestion to Jane Porter. "'Wild beasts are supposed to be devoid of sentiment,' he said. "'But nevertheless,' I should like to be married in the cabin where I was born, beside the graves of my mother and my father, and surrounded by the savage jungle that has always been my home. Would it be quite regular, dear? she asked, for if it would I know of no other place in which I should rather be married to my forest god than beneath the shade of his primeval forest. And when they spoke of it to the others they were assured that it would be quite regular, and a most splendid termination of a remarkable romance. So the entire party assembled within the little cabin and about the door to witness the second ceremony that Professor Porter was to solemnize within three days. Darnot was to be best man, and Hazel Strong, bridesmaid, until Tennington upset all the arrangements by another of his marvelous ideas. "'If Miss Strong is agreeable,' he said, taking the bridesmaid hand in his, "'Hazel and I think it would be ripping to make it a double wedding.' The next day they sailed, and as the cruiser steamed slowly out to sea, a tall man, immaculate in white flannel, and a graceful girl leaned against her rail to watch the receding shoreline upon which danced twenty naked black warriors of the Waziri, waving their war spears above their savage heads and shouting farewells to their departing king. "'I should hate to think that I'm looking upon the jungle for the last time, Jane,' he said. "'Were it not that I know that I'm going to a new world of happiness with you forever.' and bending down, Tarzan of the Apes kissed his new mate upon her lips. Thanks for joining us, everyone, for the return of Tarzan. It's been a great adventure. Edgar Rice Burroughs actually wrote 24 Tarzan adventure novels, which were published between 1912 and 1966. Followed by several novels either co-written by Burroughs or officially authorized by his estate. The Tarzan series is considered a classic of literature and is the author's best-known work. The titular Tarzan has been called one of the best-known literary characters in the world. Tarzan has been adapted many times, complete or in part, for radio, television, stage, and cinema, 
and it's been adapted for film more times than any book in existence. When Edgar Rice Burroughs was 54 years old, he had become very wealthy, and he was living on his ranch in Southern California, when he wrote this. I've often been asked how I came to write. The best answer is that I needed the money. When I started, I was 35 and had failed in every enterprise I'd ever attempted. I was born in Chicago. After epidemics had closed two schools that I attended, my parents shipped me to a cattle ranch in Idaho where I rode for my brothers who were only recently out of college and had entered the cattle business as the best way of utilizing their Yale degrees. Later, I was dropped from the Phillips Academy in Andover, Massachusetts. I flunked examinations for West Point and was discharged from the regular army on account of a weak heart. Next, my brother Henry backed me and studied up a stationery store in Pocatello, Idaho, and that didn't last long either. When I got married in 1900, I was making $15 a week in my father's storage battery business. In 1903, my oldest brother George gave me a position on a gold dredge he was operating in the Stanley Basin country in Idaho. We arrived on a freight wagon with a collie dog and $40. Now, $40 didn't seem like much to get anywhere with, so I decided to enter a poker game at a local saloon and run my capital up to several hundred dollars in one night. When I returned at midnight to the room we had rented, we still had the collie dog. Otherwise, we were not broke. I worked in Oregon until the company failed, and then my brother got me a job as a railroad policeman in Salt Lake City. We were certainly poverty-stricken there, but pride kept us from asking for help. Neither of us knew much about anything that was practical, but we had to do everything ourselves, including the family wash. Not wishing to see Mrs. Burroughs do work of that sort, I volunteered to do it myself. During those months, I half-sold my own shoes and did numerous odd jobs. Then a brilliant idea overtook us. We had our household furniture with us, and we held an auction which was a howling success. People paid real money for the junk, and we went back to Chicago first class. The next few months encompassed a series of horrible jobs. I sold electric light bulbs to janitors, candy to drugstores, and Stoddard's lectures from door to door. I had decided I was a total failure when I saw an advertisement which indicated that somebody wanted an expert accountant. Not knowing anything about it, I applied for the job and got it. I'm convinced that what are commonly known as the breaks, good or bad, have fully as much to do with one's success or failure as ability. The break I got in this instance lay in the fact that my employer knew even less about the duties of an expert accountant than I did. I approached as near financial nadir as one may reach. My son, Holbert, had just been born. I had no job and no money. I had to pawn Mrs. Burroughs' jewelry and my watch in order to buy food. I loathed poverty and I should have liked to have put my hands on the man who said that poverty is an honorable estate. It is an indication of inefficiency and nothing more. There is nothing honorable or fine about it. To be poor is quite bad enough, but to be poor without hope. Well, the only way to understand that is to be it. I got writer's cramp answering blind ads and wore out my shoes chasing after others. At last I got placed as an agent for a lead pencil sharpener. I borrowed off a space, and while sub-agents were out, tried unsuccessfully to sell the sharpener. And it was there that I started my first story. I had good reason for thinking I could sell what I wrote. I had gone thoroughly through some of the all-fiction magazines and made up my mind that if people were paid for writing such rot as I read, I could write stories just as rotten. Although I had never written a story, I knew absolutely that I could write stories just as entertaining and probably a lot more so than any I chanced to read in those magazines. I knew nothing about the technique of story writing, and now, after 18 years of writing, I still know nothing about the technique, although at the publication of my new novel, Tarzan and the Lost Empire, there are 31 books on my list.
I had never met an editor or an author or a publisher. I had no idea of how to submit a story or what I could expect in payment. Had I known anything about it at all, I would never have thought of submitting half a novel. But that's exactly what I did. Thomas Newell Medcap, who was then editor of the All Story magazine, published by Munsey, wrote me that he liked the first half of a story I had sent him, and that the second half was as good. He thought he might be able to use it. Had he not given me this encouragement, I never would have finished the story, and my writing career would have been at an end, since I was not writing because of any urge to write, nor for any particular love of writing. I was writing because I had a wife and two babies, a combination which does not work well without money. I finished the second half of the story and got $400 for the manuscript, which at that time included all serial rights. The check was the first big event in my life. No amount of money today could possibly give me the thrill that first $400 check gave me. My first story was entitled Deja Thoris, Princess of Mars. Metcalf changed it to Under the Moons of Mars. It was later published in book form as A Princess of Mars. With the success of that first story, I decided to make writing a career, though I was canny enough not to give up my job, but the job did not pay expenses and we had a recurrence of great poverty, sustained only by the threat of hope that I might make a living writing fiction. I cast about for a better job and landed one as a department manager for a business magazine. While I was working there, I wrote Tarzan of the Apes on evenings and holidays. I wrote it in longhand on the backs of old letterheads and odd pieces of paper. I didn't think it was a very good story, and I doubted if it would sell. But Bob Davis saw its possibilities for magazine publication, and I got a check, this time, for $700. After that, there were more stories and more children. Burroughs died March 19, 1950, at the age of 74, in Encino, California. His resting place in the town in California that was named after his books, Tarzana, California. We'll return soon with a brand new story for 1001 Stories for the Road. If you enjoyed Tarzan, please do send us a review for 1001 Stories for the Road. We would appreciate that very much. Thank you all for being such wonderful, faithful listeners. Everyone stay safe out there, and we'll be back soon. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.